everybody, Stephen Kent here, and you're watching Right Now. Today, we've got journalist, writer, and Twitter exile Alex Berenson on the show. We're going to talk about his new book and why the pandemic isn't being allowed to end. So stay right where you are. But I just want to open with a little venting here. I'm always excited to come in and do this show every week. I book people that I want to talk to, we share our views, we grow a little bit in the process, and let me assure you, nobody is harmed mentally or otherwise, but there's always this cloud of censorship by big tech hanging in the air when we do this. They control the means of distribution here, you know, right? They regulate opinion and information, and when you do this, you find yourself always having to think about you know, doing shows that are inspired by the path of least resistance from the censors in Silicon Valley. And the standards make no sense. Everyone watching knows this. I mean, over on The Blaze this week, Elijah Schaefer had on the white nationalist Nick Fuentes for a few hours to promote having white boy Sharia law in America. And honestly, that is safer for a channel than having an honest discussion on this platform about COVID-19 and vaccines. I'm not knocking Schaefer, by the way. I'm just saying that when we booked journalist and writer Alex Berenson to be on the show today for his new book, Pandemia, that equals a sleepless night before showtime, which is really stupid to me. I spent an unreasonable amount of time having to work on if and how we were going to discuss vaccine effectiveness and safety, and we do, whether masks work, if kids are at meaningful risk of COVID and all of that, because anything other than quasi-religious praise for the CDC and vaccines is promoting vaccine hesitancy. But these are the times we live in, and we've got to talk, and we do, and I think we do it in a balanced way that gets to the truth of the matter, and I'm really glad that we did it. So I say at the end of each show to keep asking why, to stay out of line and be a bug in the system, and I do mean it when I say that both of my guests today have been quite the bugs in the system. So let's go to my conversation with Alex Berenson, author of Pandemia and curator of Unreported Truths on Substack, and Jacob Rich of Reason Foundation. All right, Alex Berenson, thank you for being here. Uh, it's a pleasure. Yeah, well, let's start with your book's main premise, which is that the world is completely addled by fear and anxiety, completely disconnected from the reality on the ground as it concerns COVID-19 and even this new Omicron mess, which, which I guess comes after, you know, pandemia is released. But after two years of this nightmare and a death toll, you know, close to 700,000 here in the U.S., why should we be calm uh, well, I mean, first of all, I don't think the whole world is completely addled. I think parts of the United States and, and much of Europe and the Anglophone countries are, uh, are you know, very concerned about this. Uh, it seems like in much of the world, uh, including, you know, including parts of uh, the U.S., parts of the rural U.S. and red states in the U.S., and certainly countries like India and uh, Africa, uh, much of Africa, uh, you know, COVID really barely existed at all. Uh uh, you know, and, and I mean, obviously, India had a big spike back in the spring, but that's long gone. Um, so it, it does seem like you can make a case that the amount of uh, concern about COVID is directly related to sort of first world media. Um, look, uh, COVID killed some people. It has killed some people. It will continue to kill some people. Um, since it began, uh, roughly 120 million people have died in the world. There are 8 billion people in the world. People die. 
uh, and they die of respiratory diseases and they die of lots of other things. Our response to this has been completely disproportionate to the threat it prevent, presents either in the United States or globally. And I don't think I don't think that's arguable at this point. Right. And I think the the point that you're making generally about overreaction, I think that that is true. It is absolutely the case that people have died from coronavirus. When I when I told people that uh, I told I told him Alex Berenson was going to be on the show, they're like the COVID hoaxer. I was like, Alex Berenson has never said it's a hoax. He's acknowledged that this is a, a disease. It has, poses different risks to different people with different sort of pre-existing conditions, whether it be age or their health, all this kind of stuff. But that we've sort of tried a one size fits all solution to this entire pandemic and it, and it hasn't worked and it's in fact made things worse in some cases. So let's kind of go back to the beginning a little bit, right, with how all of the lockdown policies and our way of thinking as a society about COVID were formulated. Tell us a little bit about the, the impact of the Imperial College report on how we've approached the pandemic early on, right, in 2020 and how that sort of approach has lingered since then. So, so it's a great question because the Imperial College report clearly played a, a large role in March of 2020 in frightening national leaders and then in frightening the public when, you know, when it came out, it sort of was released to national leaders uh, a few days before, and then it was publicized over the weekend of March, I think, 16th. Um, I believe that was the Sunday night. Uh, and so um, maybe it was, maybe it was the 15th, but um and so clearly the numbers, the idea that two million people might die from this and that, you know, even with really severe mitigation, two million Americans might die. Even with severe mitigation, a million Americans might die. Uh, large numbers of Britons might die. And, and clearly similar numbers were being, uh, you know, sort of presented to people in European countries, too, although they weren't in the report um, that that definitely frightened people. But what I what I think is very interesting is. Um, you know, the measures that were taken were taken very rapidly in response to, you know, both in response to and they were happening in the days before the Imperial College report. And on the one hand, this stuff had been sort of considered outside the pale by a lot of national leaders. And if you look at the World Health Organization sort of pandemic playbook from 20, uh, I believe it's 2019, actually, um, you know, the, the, this stuff had not really been discussed, this kind of coordinated global response and national lockdowns. On the other hand, there was a small but vocal group of people inside the U.S. government and, and then sort of elsewhere who've been pushing for more uh, aggressive steps to be taken, starting really in the aughts. And, um, and you know, the, this idea of the emerging infectious disease or disease X was being discussed quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, so and, it has, it has and, history kind of going back early. And, and yeah, I, I was going to ask you. Why do you think that this Imperial College report was taken more seriously than previous reports? Because to Neil Ferguson's defense, and he is the main author of this report, of course, this is actually one of the more, as, as inaccurate as it is, it's one of the more accurate things he's ever published. He had incredibly, <laughs> yeah. honestly, he had terrible um, terrible and very scary predictions for what would happen with N1H1 and swine flu. So why do you think this is the moment where they actually took such um, fearful statements seriously? Well, that's a great point. I, you know, you actually, you beat me to it. I was just about to say it. These people had been wrong. Ferguson and others had been wrong in 03, in 05, in 09, in 2012. Uh, they, they, you know, they were wrong over and over again. Um, look, the 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 videos that came out of China were scary. The data that the Chinese were reporting was scary. 
Um, and, uh, and that, you know, the sort of early data that came out of Italy in early March was scary, but there's something else, which is, and this is the part, you know, where you start to, you know, veer towards conspiracy. And, and I want to be clear, I am not saying that some group of scientists, you know, invented the coronavirus to kill people. But what I will tell you is it was clear in the, in the, you know, sort of the decade of 2010 through 2020, that, that there were people doing gain-of-function work with coronaviruses that was yeah, potentially and I, I think, dangerous. I think Senator Rand, Rand Paul has been pretty sufficiently on top of this, and uh, and I think it's it's valuable because we, we need to know where it came from. But I, I kind of want to stay focused a little bit on wait, 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 wait. how these let models— me, let, me just, let me just say something here because this goes back to this issue of why people got so scared. So the people who knew the most about this knew— that this virus had characteristics that didn't look natural. That was at the end of January and early February. There, those, FOIA, those FOIA documents from NIH and Fauci make that clear. So maybe they were scared. They were scared about the Fern Cleavage site. They were scared that this thing, wherever it had come from, let's say it leaked from a Chinese lab accidentally following you know, work that was done with the best of intentions. Let's just, let's just give everybody the benefit of the doubt had a risk that was much greater than other coronaviruses, uh, other sort of common cold type coronaviruses, and that it was more like a SARS type coronavirus, but with the transmissibility of a common cold coronavirus. But that this, this was virus was much is much safer than SARS-1. The death rate of SARS-1 is yeah, much I, higher than SARS-2. So it's not really clear to me that it's obvious where that it's not it's not just by looking at the symptoms of the disease it's not really clear where it came from it's more circumstantial evidence of where it started why we think it might be created so so you're saying to me why this crazy overreaction and i'm saying to you if you were one of the people on the inside who knew the real dangers of the work that was being done and then this thing popped out and got out of containment in china that would be very scary for you. And I, I think this is this is where I, I always kind of go back to your your work that you had, you've done for a long, long time. You were a reporter at the New York Times, and you covered the pharmaceutical industry. And you covered it well. And and one story that you talk a lot about uh, is Merck Pharmaceuticals and what went wrong with Vioxx. And I think this is baked into your your national persona, just a skepticism about what goes on on the inside, these companies, because you've seen, you know, foul play before. And I think when you see those kinds of things, it can be hard to, <laughs> it can be hard to kind of back up and be like, you know, there are areas where chaos ensues and people mismanage things by accident. And then there are areas of ill will and bad intent. Can you talk a little bit? No, 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 no. I don't see foul play. I see exactly the latter. I see chaos and mismanagement. That's yeah. that's that's what I'm suggesting to you, and that's and that's exactly what I see. What I saw with Merck, Merck, uh, you know, Ed Skolnick is a great scientist. These the, Merck is probably the best pharmaceutical company in the world. These people did not set out to make a arthritis drug that was going to kill people. It's just that when they realized it did kill people, they couldn't admit it to themselves. We are we are in agreement, not disagreement. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm not too familiar with the Merck situation, but the. Um the corruption of the pharmaceutical lobby within Washington, D.C. is quite real. So I, it, it's hard for me to look at a situation, figure out what was playing into these decisions. But if profit is on the line, 
And this is in yeah, that the profit it, thing, like you know, the old it's school billions of liberal, dollars of profit on the line. The this liberal, the liberal establishment used to be good on this. They used to be skeptical, and the it's the rush towards consensus which has been alarming. Did did either of you see the clip of Trevor Noah this past week on the Daily Show talking about Moderna? I, I would like That's to roll still a real show. Yeah, it is still people a real watch show. That there, after there's John like, Stover, there's like five. There is five people who are watching, uh, but I, I want to <laughs> roll this clip here real quick. If control room, we've got it on because Trevor Noah mentioned about the Moderna CEO Stefan Bansel saying that they are going to need another you know individual booster for just Omicron. That you know I would kind of like to hear it from someone who doesn't stand to make millions of dollars on this. Can we roll that clip? On the one hand. Almost all the Omicron cases have been mild so far. But on the other hand, the guy who stands to gain millions of dollars from new vaccines says we need new vaccines. Hmm. If we don't make a new vaccine, this disease could be with us Ferrari. I mean forever. Sorry, I was thinking of something else. Now look, I'm not saying that the CEO of Moderna is lying. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying, I don't think he's the most objective source on this topic. You know, I'll wait to hear what neutral experts say about a new vaccine. People like public health officials or the CEO of Johnson & Johnson. I mean, he's got nothing to gain because nobody's going to buy his vaccines either way. So I trust him. <laughs> Alex is grinning like, victory! <laughs> Skepticism. Well, Russ, uh, Trevor Noah actually made me nice laugh. Putting on the left, make a joke about this for a change, right? Yeah, yeah it's, it's really nice. And it's really, it's really interesting how through... This entire process of taking in a virus and just observing a virus completely affect how we interpret things that things that we understood to be true, which are still objectively true, have been thrown out the window. When viruses evolve, they evolve to survive. And the incentives are the virus becomes more contagious and less deadly. And there's been almost no acknowledgement of the less safety, I'm sorry, of the less dangerous aspect of the infections throughout this entire process. And as we've looked at the virus as it's evolved, even amid the vaccines, there still seems to be a lower death rate among the people who are not vaccinated of the disease. And these things are not being acknowledged and fear is still being weaponized against us. Yeah, Alex, this morning in USA Today, they had a piece on Omicron. I'd like to I'd like to know what you think about this new variant and the panic over it. But at the very bottom of the article, the last thing they say is exactly what Jacob Rich said, citing an expert saying, look, these things usually get higher transmission over time and less deadly because that's what viruses do. But they don't they don't ever want to talk about it. Yeah, look, I don't I don't understand. I don't understand the sort of coordinated global media messaging on all this stuff. I don't understand why obvious points are not being made. By the way, you know, Jacob, I, I, I could I could disagree with you about the you know some of the specifics about Delta because it actually does appear that Delta is at least as deadly, if not more deadly, than the original wild type. But but the broader point you're making that vaccines tend to evolve the way you say, or viruses tend to evolve the way you say, is true. So um, no, uh, look, this is this has been a very strange two years and. I am not sure how and when we get back to normal. I, 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 I don't mean I don't mean like most of us in our lives. I mean how the political establishment and media establishment gets back to normal. Alex, what do you make of Bill de Blasio putting his foot forward on this vaccine mandate for private employers? It's going to impact hundreds of thousands of employers in, in New York City. What's going on there? 
Well, and don't forget, there's a child aspect to this, too, that they're trying to make sure that kids 5 to 11 be vaccinated if they want to do anything that adults, Mm -hmm. you know, can do in New York. Um, I don't think this has a I think this is a very good chance of being struck down. Okay, if you look at the the courts now and I know it's red state courts and it's mostly Republican appointed judges, um, they have struck down. Uh, you know, a lot of fed or not, you know, stayed and implied that they're going to permanently strike down uh, all the major federal mandates. And this one is even more overreaching and and, you know, with even less reason. And so I guess de Blasio, if I had to guess, I mean, de Blasio is a moron, as we know, but uh, I guess what he's trying to do is play to the sort of deep blue Democratic base because he wants to run for governor in New York. And he thinks that this is, you know, there's still all these people in Brooklyn and, and Westchester and Manhattan who are scared to death death of this thing for reasons that escape me. And so I think, I guess he thinks it's good for them because he has to know um, that there's very little chance that, that this may I mean, isn't is it just about forward. getting vaccination numbers up? Like, like you said, like it's going to lose in court. I think that they probably know this, just like Biden knew that this was going to lose in court with OSHA uh, a mandate. But it does seem to me that the general strategy is that when you pull the rug out from employers like that, kind of spook people and rattle them like, hey, you're going to have to get vaccinated by December 27th or else there's a rush to do it. And then you raise your overall vaccination numbers and then you lose in court quietly. Yeah, that that. that hasn't really. Sorry, I was going to say that hasn't really worked on the national level. If you look at vaccination rates, aside from there was a spike when the when colleges forced students to get vaccinated and there was a there was a small spike. Uh, about two weeks ago when five to 11 year olds, when they opened it up, when really stupid parents decided to get their kids vaccinated. But, uh, but beyond Why would that, those make it necessarily little, stupid, um, because this illness is zero risk to a healthy, you know, and I'm defining it's healthy very broadly. Well, it's not, not it, it is very zero. close to zero and there is yeah, 0.0002. It's, <laughs> it's so, it's so no, low it's, for this group. Lower than, lower than that. Um, but so, so the well, mandate we need to actually, touch on this though, because there is like a theoretical idea of yeah. why we want to vaccinate children. It, so let's be clear: the the death rate and the hospitalization rate of COVID nineteen is so low that despite the vaccines being quite safe, there might actually be more danger from the vaccines for this group. But when we're yeah. when thinking about um, vaccine policy, we're not only thinking about the individuals; we're thinking about how does the vaccine necessarily affect the transmission of the disease of the person who's infected? How is this going to affect the adjusted R naught, the the proclivity for this disease to spread after someone's infected? And you know, it, it might be the case that a child gets vaccinated, and if they happen to catch COVID, they have even less symptoms, and then there's less population effects from being vaccinated. And I guess. You can argue whether we should force people to do that. We probably shouldn't. But for parents to make the decision to vaccinate their kids when the probability that their kids are being affected is going to be like one to some somewhere within that magnitude of the 100,000s, uh-huh. it seems pretty safe. And it's not that inconsiderate of parents to do so. And I guess that's what I'm. Why, why do you think that the magnitude of children being affected by the vaccine is one in the 100,000s? The myocarditis risk alone is somewhere between one in three thousand and one in six thousand for uh, for teenagers and young adults, and it's probably not that much less than that for for sort of younger teenagers. So uh, you're you're well, just this wrong. Is a, this I mean, according to VAERS, right? There is a there is a provably higher risk for myocarditis alone 
than all COVID risk for young kids, or, or for I should certainly say for teenagers and probably for young kids. I mean, I, the, the people have been lied to about this. They've been lied to, and it is disgusting. Children shouldn't be, and children should not be vaccinated to protect adults. When, when did that become a thing? That's insane. Well, that's not necessarily insane. Maybe work. in the context of this virus, it's insane, but it's definitely not an insane notion in general. It would depend on how deadly the virus is for adults. And the virus is like only 0.2% death rate for the entire population. So that's right. we're and probably not at the threshold to really do this. And I, but I think that that's a- the entire underlying theme here, which is yeah. that we have not been honest with ourselves and our, our leaders have not been honest with us about the overall relative risk to different people of this virus. And so we are overreacting yes. across the board. I, I don't know what to do with my child when it comes to the vaccination thing. I'm in the realm of like the unknown, just like every other parent who I'm, I'm scared I'm nervous. I'm looking to different people to try to give me some objective truth. And I cannot tell the difference between (laughs) the people who have a lot of money on the table to gain from this vaccination process versus the people who go like, hey, you know, this was rushed through very, very quickly. Maybe we should take a beat. Uh, I just don't see the relative risk. Well, I don't think there's really much issue with the rushing through with the FDA approval process. I think all of the standards of the FDA approval process for the vaccine were basically met because the FDA approval process never actually looks at the long-term outcome of drugs. It's very often that a, an FDA-approved drug comes on the market in the short term within the couple of years where you're going through that process. It passes everything, and then the long-term things happen. I don't with, like that. <laughs> well, with, with this drug, we basically did state, um, stages one, two, and three all at the same time. So in terms of like danger from skipping FDA approval process. That's not really an issue with this. It's just a novel technology that we should be more skeptical of. I don't know. Do you have any comments on that, Alex? Uh, I, I would I would, I would, would sharply disagree with that, too. Um, in, uh, here was the mistake that was made, okay? And you can see this, is pub- this was publicly stated by FDA officials and others. People said, well, we have never seen a problem with a vaccine that didn't show up less than six weeks after the sort of second dose was complete, or, you know, the first dose if it was a one-dose regimen. So so we're going to be especially careful with this. We're going to extend it an extra 18 days. So we're going to have median data for 60 days past the second dose. Okay, this was moronic. This isn't like other vaccines. It is a completely novel technology, which with known uh, problems around repeated dosing, which is why it became, a, you know, why Moderna moved from therapeutics to vaccine development and had never been used in, uh, you know, in any approved, uh, you know, drug or even any drug that was in phase three trials. It had been given, mRNA technology had been given to, I don't know what the exact number is, I should find it, but I believe it was under 1,000 people before you know, the coronavirus came. We can we can find that number. Maybe it was 2,000. It was a tiny number. And so the idea that that you don't need a year or two of follow-up data before you start putting this in literally hundreds of millions of healthy people's arms is crazy. And, and, and I would disagree that the FDA, for, for drugs like statins that are essentially kind of used the same way as preventatives given to mostly healthy people, yeah, the but that's FDA taken multiple times years, throughout the year. That's multiple exposures. Yeah, okay. That like is this true, is like one, they, two, or three exposures versus like weekly. Changes. They produce permanent changes in the immune system. That's what they're supposed to do. It's the, the we, we, I, I mean, I, it's, it's, they all got scared 
back in March and April of 2020 that this was going to, you know, kill 10 million people in the United States. And they threw out 50 years of rational drug development. Well, and we don't know how dangerous this is. It could be it could be that the dangers are less than the coronavirus or more. We don't know long term. Um, I, I think that there are aspects of that that are true. Like this is completely novel. Um, it could be the case that later we find out there are problems. I don't think there's any information coming out to indicate that at the moment, and we probably disagree on that. The area where, where I just sort of feel the most uncomfortable and worried when we have these conversations is the fact that we're not supposed to talk about any of this. No, the, I'm, I'm the, very happy to be here. I mean, no, it's like the, the climate, the climate of, of censorship and and people, you know, like talking about like you can't get online and use social platforms to express like worry or doubt or I don't know which way we need to go on these policies. I mean, is is getting cracked down, and it pushes me in the opposite direction of trust in any of this process when platforms are censorious and the federal government is restricting the way we're supposed to talk about it. It makes me nervous, and I I think that this is an area where Alex, like you, in in the course of your career, you have been somebody who goes against consensus in in many different cases and looks at where it is like being rushed too quickly. COVID has moved very fast and the consensus around it moved very fast as well as vaccines. It is also the case that this happened with public policy and politicians around marijuana. And I just wanted to, to ask a little bit to close out here. Do you still maintain the positions of your, your book, Tell Your Kids, and some of the observations you made in there about the connections between marijuana and mental illness? Oh, oh yeah. I mean, I think I think that there's been more evidence since the, since Tell Your Children came out. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, I think I think the the downstream uh, issue that's look, psychiatrists, this is every psychiatrist knows this, that that cannabis use uh, can provoke it can provoke psychotic episodes and heavy use in, you know, in young adults can in vulnerable people cause permanent breaks. I mean, I, I think I think that's basically the psychiatric consensus at this point. Just this week, the stabbing of a Columbia University graduate student, the killing of a, a student, uh, you know, on the street uh, in 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 Harlem near Columbia by a guy who told cops, according to the New York Post, that he'd been quote unquote smoking weed all day before he stabbed that guy. And you can tell me that's an N of one, and you're correct, yes, that is an but I can, but yes, it's an anecdote. That's correct. But but I but what I'm telling you is that I have data. It's in the book, and more data has come out since. So yes. I stand by tell your children I believe I believe the evidence has only gotten stronger. So uh, we, there are, you know, the first time I got to see you talk at the Kirby Center in DC, I was actually pretty happy that you were pushing back against this notion that marijuana cannot be dangerous. Um, it, it most certainly can be dangerous. Uh, I guess where I have issue is by looking at these very select issue, well, these very select cases. And trying to extrapolate this to the population. And I think what I get out of your book is that if we legalize marijuana or if there is even um, responsible use of marijuana, we're going to run into major, major problems. Versus it seems like at the population level, everything that you're warning about does not actually come to fruition. When there's increases in marijuana use at the population level, at the state level, we don't see changes in mental illness. We don't 
see increases in violence. And even though there's individuals who we need to be very careful about allowing to have access to marijuana, that's no different than alcohol and other sorts of behavioral activities that can exacerbate stuff. So how do we I, even control access based on based on who would get, get access to it in a legal market? That that seems like you would have to have very that's, certain that's a great, yeah. that is a great question. That's a great, it's a great question. Um, just say, so, so I wouldn't necessarily agree with the first half of your statement, but I would say even if the first half of your statement is true, that, that we haven't seen increases, and by the way, if you look at a place like Denver, Colorado, or Portland, or Seattle, I mean, it, uh, murders in Portland are up 10x since 2012, or uh, approximately. I mean, Are you talking you know, about right now? Because there's a lot of exogenous factors for right now. I know, I know. Coral, it's very, very hard to separate these threads. What I'm saying to you is like, that. that's, that's a stunning increase, okay? My position, even more than that, that, that cannabis shouldn't be legal, is that it shouldn't have been legalized on the basis that it was medicine, which it is not. That's right. And, That's, and, we agree on that. And and we should be grown-ups about legalizing it and acknowledge that there are that it is going to wreck some people. But there that, was more violence with alcohol during prohibition, yeah. right? Like the, like um, people ended up using was, alcohol again, and then there was crime. <laughs> so, but but anyway, look, this sure. is a different topic. And and you know I would love when 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 the pandemic ends if it ever ends we can come back to talking about tell your children I'd sure. love to do that and you know um, one thing I, I do want to talk about um you, you were you were talking about the uh, cases of myocarditis with children and I don't I, I really don't have this I I acknowledge it exists and I acknowledge that the symptoms of this vaccine are more than any vaccine we've ever seen. And this is something that yes. at least we have circumstantial evidence that we need to investigate. Let's just discuss a little bit about the VAERS system and what our government needs to do in order to create good data to evaluate these. Because I will concede that we need – there is enough evidence for suspicion, let's say. But the VAERS system, people are self-reporting. And I know lots of people say, well, it's never been inaccurate before. There's been lots of research to show that the VAERS system is incredibly accurate from studies that were around 2016, 2018. Mm -hmm. But now we're in an environment where everything's politicized. And I can literally get on the internet now and fill out a VAERS report. <laughs> so I, like, I, I don't, like, the fact that I see people with symptoms after they get the vaccine, that's enough for me to say, okay. This obviously at least creates symptoms more than other things. But what do we need to do in terms of a government to actually have a good monitoring system right. of what happened? So we, we could have a good monitoring system. We have, and you know, other countries have good electronic medical records. And we could we could take uh, you know a million people who've been vaccinated and you know and try to match them against a million who haven't and look at you know myocarditis and and you know appendicitis and you know what what all all sorts of you know medical outcomes for 7 14 21 28 days for one month two months three months and we could look at all cause mortality and we could look at covid mortality we have failed to do that properly in the united states some other countries have done a slightly better job but at this point you can't you can't put it up to incompetence anymore. There is a sort of a deliberate decision not to look at the proper outcomes here, including the most important one, which is all cause mortality in vaccinated people. And I will just leave you with this, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna quit on a high note. All cause mortality in 
in, you know, in countries that are doing a better job measuring it than we are, which includes the UK and Germany, has ticked up notably in the last three to six months. Okay, and you can come up with explanations for that that don't include the vaccines killing people. You can come up with lots of plausible explanations. Yeah. But one plausible explanation is that the vaccines are causing cardiac events and that and that now that they've been given to so many people, even though, you know, maybe the increase is relatively small, it's real and it is driving all cause deaths. And I'm not saying that we know that because we don't. What I'm saying is we need to investigate this nationally and worldwide and we are not. And that is wrong. Well, those data so, will know, be published. They're scheduled to be published around Christmas time in the United States. So I guess we'll see. I am I am open to more information. <laughs> I like discussion and I, I want all the all the cards on the table. Uh, Alex Berenson, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. I know you're super busy rolling out uh, pandemia, how coronavirus hysteria took over our lives rights and and government uh, government rights and lives <laughs> jacob let's wrap this up a little bit what was your impression because this is this is the guy who the atlantic branded the wrongest man in america uh, he is banned from twitter he has been kicked off every platform in that and relegated to substack what was your impression of that conversation it's, it's interesting because i've been i've been familiar with alex's work for a long time and I think he's, uh, like, I think he's actually courageous, and also often dead wrong. And it's it's hard for me to, I, I there's a, there's, and consequently I have appreciation for him. And then I'm just thinking, you know, you could try not to go as far with your arguments, bring it in a little more, and then do something very important, and then actually be taken seriously. The idea that the rhetoric surrounding vaccines mm-hmm. is flawed, I completely agree. And there's a community of scientists who are really dedicated to trying to figure this out. But the people who go on the media and suggest that taking this is going to put you or your loved ones at risk, that's not accurate. And it's honestly detrimental to the investigation of science for all this. I, I had one family member who had a cardiac event related with getting their their second shot. They are okay, still with us, but also someone who absolutely deals with um, the obesity issue, right, being incredibly heavy. Like, this entire uh, pandemic has been a risky situation. Yes. And that's, that's the thing that, like, you know, Alex has talked about, Joe Rogan's talked about a lot about that. Like, your pre-existing conditions, your, your relative health is going to be a huge factor in whether or not this thing's dangerous for you. Um, and I, I think that this is just an area where it's it's – He's completely wrong, and I, I'm not. I don't feel convinced at all um, that the vaccines are risky for people to take who are healthy, right? Like, or even like, right? Like, what do you think on that? It, <laughs> well, I, I. So yeah, if there's some things where I don't see circumstantial evidence, and I put context clues together and I figure things out. But with the vaccines, I. He was talking about like up to three thousand per 100,000 children. That's a huge number. And if that was happening, there there must be incredible coordination to hide that. And this kind of comes back to my criticisms of his book. I'm reading through his book. He's basically saying there's this marijuana lobby. I have the book right here. There's this marijuana lobby that is trying to hide the harms of marijuana. Yes, that's true. 
But then he says things like NASM, the National Academy of Sciences of Engineering and Medicine. Um, He said, according to NASM, the only conditions cannabis or cannabinoids have been proven to treat are chemotherapy-associated nausea and spastic muscles associated with multiple cirrhosis. And NASM, they created this giant study about the effects of marijuana on society and whatnot. The first line of um, of their summary was how marijuana can be used for the treatment of chronic pain. And he specifically said in the book that NASM said that wasn't the case. So I'm not... I'm not here to... I'm not picking up whether or not he believes in sort of general chaos theory, mismanagement, or conspiracy. Because he, he switches right back between the two. You ask him, you know, about the London College Report and all that stuff. Uh, and he goes back to, like, the, the groundwork was laid for this in the early 2000s, as if, like, there was... Groundwork. Yeah, like, the groundwork <laughs> for all this was laid in the early 2000s, and they've been waiting to sort of spring this pandemic state on us, but with the right virus. I'm like, that's not really what I'm, like, asking about. I'm more asking about, like, how did the models in the early early uh, months of 2000, 2020, impact our COVID response? And I don't know, he always wants to go back to, this was a plan, and uh, that's not right. Yeah. Everything you just said, I really agree with. I don't know how to elaborate on that anymore. <laughs> oh, man. Well, we, we survived. I mean, it was, it was honestly a pleasure to be on your last show and my last show. And it's... <laughs> well, we, I, I just spoke to the most dangerous man in America, <laughs> Alex Berenson. All right, that's it for this episode of Right Now. I'm Stephen Kent, and this has been a great show with guests Jacob Rich of Reason Foundation and PhD candidate, fancy, fancy. Congratulations, by the way. Thank since you. Since you first started coming on the show, uh, life has changed a whole lot for you. And uh, Yeah. No, I, I actually have the distinct pleasure of researching these things full-time. PhD candidate at the Case Western Reserve University of Medicine, and I get to do research at the Cleveland Clinic, which is ranked number two hospital in the world, but it might be number one. I've just... You know, it's everything has been an absolute yeah. pleasure and a blessing, and I'm just good for you, man. Good for you. Keep studying hard, and we also <laughs> were talking to Alex Berenson, author of Pandemia, and we will be back next week with a bit of an experimental episode out of the studio because I'm going to be in Miami, first time actually, and I'm going to be there uh, talking to Brad Palumbo and Gothics remotely. You won't want to miss it, so subscribe to the channel, and in the meantime. Do keep asking why, stay out of line, and be a bug in the system. Have a good week.